right, so last week, if you were here, we took a look at one of the more difficult passages in all of the Bible, uh, difficult chapters, I should say, and it was Romans chapter 9, and Romans chapter 9 deals with the doctrine of election. I'm not going to unpack all of it again, but I would love for you, if you didn't get a chance to listen to it, to go back and you go to our podcast, you can go to our YouTube page, uh, you can look at it on the app, and you can listen to it there. I encourage you to do so. Um, but I do want to share a passage from last week that sort of leans into the heart of what we're going to discover today in chapter 10. And here's what it says in Romans chapter 9, verses 2 and 3. Paul writes this. He says that, he says that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So Paul in 9 talks about how much of a struggle he had for his people, his nation, his, his uh, nationality, if you will, that they were cut off from Christ. And last week in the text, we looked at the main theme of really chapter 9 and the main emphasis of chapter 9 is that it's not as though the word of God has failed because there were some who believed that, well, if again, if, if God were so gracious and if God was a covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God, then why is it that he made all these promises in the Old Testament to the nation of Israel, and then yet it's all the Gentile nations, those who were not Jewish, who were coming to faith in Christ, while it seemed that the nation of Israel was stumbling over the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. And in, in all of that, Paul spends much of that chapter just unpacking the reality that what may be appearing to what, what it may appear to be in that the Jews are stumbling over Christ is not as though the word of God has failed. And he goes back and he spells it out. We're going to look at some of this stuff today and what the explanation behind it all is. Now, as I get started, I just want to, um, I want to share about a conversation that took place yesterday. Uh, yesterday, we were uh, spending some time with uh, the Clarks, and Asher asked Aiden a question about, we were on a boat, and, and so uh, he asked Aiden, this question, like, how can a boat float? You know, how can a big old heavy thing stay on top of the water? How does that even work? And in that moment, um, Aiden told him about Archimedes. And if you're from a science background, maybe you've heard the term before. But Archimedes was a, a man, he was from uh, Syracuse, not New York, foreign Syracuse. And uh, he was famous for jumping out of his bathtub when he, uh, and running naked through the streets uh, not anything that I encourage any of us to do, but he runs naked through the streets yelling Eureka. Well, what is he yelling about? What is he so excited about? And what it was is he was super excited about discovering the principle of water displacement. And so literally the, the, the reason that a boat can float, that a boat that weighs thousands of pounds can float in the water is this very principle and so, um, you know, as Archimedes does this, it's, it's possibly ancient legend. They say that he ran through the streets naked. That's possible. But Archimedes certainly ranks as one of the most brilliant human beings in history. I mean, the things that he was able to discover, there are a lot of other things other than this principle that were attributed to him, such as um, in the second century BC, he came very close to pinpointing the value of pi. Um, any of you can quote pi off the top of your head? Yeah, it's okay. It's 3.14, right? Like, and, and we know it goes further out than that. And, and, but he came very close to properly documenting and discovering the value of pi. And uh, he showed it that it was greater than 223 over 71, but it was less than 22 over 7. So, I mean, that's dialing it in pretty well. 
Uh, the world's first seagoing ship uh, had a screw propeller, and it was the SS Archimedes, named in, in his honor, um, is the one who created the screw pump. And then even um, he has a moon and a crater named after him, uh, and an asteroid named after him, 3600 Archimedes. I mean, so this man was brilliant. Uh, but he also is perhaps known for this very famous quote. Here's what he says. He says, give me a place to stand and I will move the earth. Give me a place to stand and I will move the earth. Now, Archimedes did not invent the lever, but he certainly came up with the principle behind what the lever is. Um, simply put, a lever Again, from science class, when you take a lever and you apply pressure, the input force of it um, will create, when you apply input force to a lever, it will produce a greater output on the other side. The longer the lever, the greater the leverage. The longer the lever, the greater the leverage. The concept of leverage has indeed been leveraged in thousands of ways. But here's what I want to talk about this morning for a second as we lead into Romans chapter 10. The principle is this. In a system, a leverage point is the place in a system's structure where a solution element can be applied. Um, a high leverage point is a place where a small amount of leverage can be input and, can change the, and, and a change of force can cause a large change in a system's behavior. So small input, large output. Small change, large change on the back end. You can put in one small 1% detail and you get a 99% increase on the other side. And we're familiar with this because we have known in our lives, throughout the course of our lives, there have been things that you have made. There's been small little changes that you have made in your life and your approach to some things. Maybe even the way you think about some things that once you made that very small, tiny switch and that small change produced great benefit for you later on down the road. So today in chapter 10, Paul is going to share with us um, something that's very important. And when we think about small inputs creating large outputs, there is a word in our English vocabulary that's just two small little letters put together, but when contemplated, produce the potential for us to experience great outcomes. And the word is if. Two little letters if leveraged properly, can produce in our life great outcomes. But we have to be willing to entertain the if. Now, in chapter 10, Paul is going to use these two letters, this one word, to show us something. But before we get to the if, we must understand some of the reasons that Israel stumbled in the very beginning. How is it that Israel missed it to begin with? I mean, you would think that the nation of Israel, of all the people, they would have been the ones who would have figured out and noticed that Jesus was the Messiah. They had studied the scriptures for, for you know, hundreds of years. And as they've studied, all of those scriptures were for the purpose, all of the Old Testament prophecies were for the purpose of them going, hey, I need to give you a description. That, when, that way, when the Messiah shows up, you'll be able to recognize him. I don't know if you've ever had to go to the airport or if you've ever had to go pick up someone maybe that you weren't terribly familiar with. I remember years ago, I was asked to go pick up. There was a, a big conference that was going on, and a friend of mine asked me to go pick up a speaker and bring him from the airport to the event. I said, sure, I'll do it. And, you know, I'm just, I'm like, I hope I recognize him. 
And so I, I Googled him and I looked him up and there's a picture of him on Google. And I was like, okay, because he, uh, he had written some books. And so finding a picture of him was not difficult. And um, so I, I Googled him, I saw his face. But then it's like, okay, but what if his hair's changed? What if, what if he shows up and he's lost weight or put on weight? How, how, am I, how certain am I that I'm going to recognize him? Well, the Jews had studied the scriptures and the prophecies for hundreds of years. And then it was for the purpose of, hey, when the Messiah shows up, this is how you can know him. But how did they miss it? How is it that the Jews were the ones that stumbled over the Messiah coming? I mean, when you, again, when you look, it says um, that, that God had used the law to prepare the nation that when Jesus came, they would see him. But instead of seeing him, they rejected him. In John 1.1, it says he came to his home and his own did not receive him. Now, to be sure, there was a faithful remnant in the nation, but... The majority of the people in his day were not ready for when he came. So how did they miss it? That's the question. And here's why that question is important to all of us. Is it possible? Is it possible that we miss it? I mean, listen, if the Jews studied the scriptures for hundreds of years and they didn't recognize Jesus when he showed up, is it possible that we could sit in church for decades, study the scriptures, and completely miss who Jesus is and completely miss what Jesus came to do. So here's a question. We're going to answer this question through these first three verses. I had planned to go all the way to Romans 10, 17. We're not going to make it. We're going to get to Romans 10, 3 today, and then we'll all go home, okay? All right, so um, don't get too excited. It's going to take longer than you think. Uh, so 10, 1 through 3 gives us a description that Paul is going to give us about how they missed it. And these are clues to us that we have to be careful not to replicate what the Jews did that we would not miss Jesus. So here we go. Romans chapter 10, verse 1. Look at what it says. He says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God is for them to be saved. Now, again, he's referencing the Jewish people. Paul is saying, my heart's desire is for them to be saved. Why were they not saved? Well, there's one possibility we're going to start with here. Number one, they were too self-righteous to see their need for salvation. They were too self-righteous to see their need for salvation. The others, see, here's what the Jews did. The Jews got guilty of what we often, what I'm often guilty of. When we see people who sin, what do we think? Oh my goodness, they're, they're just too far gone. We judge people, we criticize people for living in sin while we neglect our own sin. Jesus would say, hey, you need to first take that big red oak out of your own eye so that you can see you know, the plank that might be in or the, the speck that's in your brother's eye. But what do we do? We are very, very guilty at judging and condemning the sins of other people. And this is what Israel did. Israel looked at the Gentiles who were not Jews and, and they considered themselves so self-righteous that they didn't see their own need for salvation. And this is illustrated in several parables throughout the New Testament in the Gospels. Let me read from one of these. This is Luke chapter 8, verses 9 through 14. And this is Jesus speaking. And so it says this, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, a Pharisee, very religious, spiritual person, one of the Jews, the other a tax collector. A tax collector was despised by their community. They were despised by the Jewish people. 
It says the Pharisee in verse 11, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. We have to be very careful because I'll be honest with you, in the flesh, in the flesh, I can be very critical of other people. When I get in the flesh, when I'm not being led by the Spirit, when I am thinking from a worldly mindset, I can look at other people who don't dress like I do, believe like I do, live like I do, like the same team that I do, and I can become very, very critical of those people. But we must ask ourselves, why is it that people behave the way they do? Why is it, maybe a better question for us to ask is, why does that creep up into my heart and head when I see other people who are not like me? Have you ever noticed that you're, the, that you're right and everybody else is wrong? Who is it, Aiden? What did you say yesterday? Uh, if, if you would all understand that I'm right, then we would all get along, right? All the women said an amen under their breath, you know what I mean? Like, they're going, that's my husband, oh my gosh, you just identified him. But it says, the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. He, and listen, here's what he says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And so he begins to point to his own deeds, his own works. He begins to point to his own self-righteousness so that he, can, he looks down on others and he looks up to himself. And then look at how Jesus finishes his parable. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be what? Exalted. I love this is quoted in other passages in the New Testament. Even Peter would get into it. Peter would quote it and say, hey, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And I'm just afraid that in the church today, if we're not careful, we're going to be just like the Jews. We're going to become so proud of all of our accomplishments, of all of our attendance records, of all of our giving records. We're going to become so proud that we are no longer going to see our own need for Jesus. So, may their failure be a warning to us. A salvation that's not worth evaluating is a salvation that's not worth having. I mean, we need to inspect ourselves. We need to check our hearts on a regular basis. And it was true for their salvation, but it was also is true for their sanctification and for us. Okay. So why we need to inspect ourselves and inspect our salvation and consider whether or not we have been made righteous by the blood of Jesus or whether we have made ourselves righteous by our own actions is important. But we also need to not just think about our salvation, but our sanctification as well. We didn't just need Jesus to save us, okay? We did not just need Jesus to save us. We needed Jesus to also sanctify us. We needed Jesus to change us. We needed Jesus to come into our life and change all of those little broken things that we had. All these judgmental concepts, all of these hatreds towards other people, all of these self-edifying thoughts that creep into our hearts. We have got to be careful 
See, we needed Jesus not just to save us, but to change us. Too many of us could be guilty, if we're not careful, of following Jesus to the cross and then stopping there. But Jesus did not say, just come to the cross. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me, that there is something to be done after. The mission was not salvation alone. The mission has always been that we would be saved and then changed so that changed people could have a changed view of other people and that we could see our own salvation and see other people and go, yes, they need salvation too. That we would be so changed that we could go out into the world and preach a gospel that is not, it's not disqualified because of how we've lived our life. Jesus saved us in order to get our eyes off of ourselves and onto other people. And not in a judgmental or critical way. That we would not be saved so that we could get our eyes off of self and look at other people and go, man, you guys just don't have it together. You guys, look, do you know so-and-so? Do you know what they're doing? The purpose of all of Jesus' saving power in us is to give us a heart so that we could love other people appropriately. Jesus would say it this way, love your neighbor as what? Man, we're so good at loving ourselves. But I'm not so sure that we're all that great at loving our neighbor. When we see the way Jesus sees, we will be able to see two things when we look at other people. Okay, this is important. When we are able to see, when, when Jesus changes our heart, we are transformed by the renewing of our mind, we can begin to see people. When we look at people, we'll see two things. Number one, we should be able to see people created in the image of God, whom God loved and sent his son to die for. When we look at other people who are not living the way that we maybe would want them to live, we should look at them and see there's something wrong. I mean, if, if, you, if you saw someone that you loved, if you saw a family member and they weren't acting right, if you saw a family member and something was going on, they were not speaking properly, they weren't acting right, maybe they were stumbling or tripping, you would think, hey, there's something going on medically, you need to go get checked out. When we see other people and they're not living in accordance to God's word, then what that should point us to is there is somebody that is created in the image of God and what God and who God is is not being perfectly reflected in the life of that person. There is something wrong. We shouldn't say there's something to be hated about the person. We should say, I love the person. And what I want for that person is for them to know God the way I know God. And when we know and when they know God the way that the word of God tells us to, their life and their purpose will align. And so the Jews, they were so concerned that they, about their own self-righteousness, they were so concerned about their obedience and adherence to the law that they couldn't see. All they could see through the law was how, it, how other people didn't measure up, and they couldn't see themselves in it. And so they missed Jesus. Because what is the whole point of the law? Jesus summed it up. He said, when they asked him, hey, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus said, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is just like it. You should love your neighbor as yourself. The whole law summed up in love. So when we see other people, we should see people created in the image of God, and we should have love for them. The second thing we should see when we see other people is we should see ourselves in others. When other people are living in sin, it 
you know, we, we have this thing in our heart where we just want to condemn for how they're living. Instead, what we should think about is, that was me. That, <laughs> that was me. I, I'm, I'm just... None of you knew me in my BC days, but you would have not liked me. Some of you probably don't like me now, and that's okay. But you would have not liked me. I was arrogant. I was not very complimentary of other people. I lived for myself. I didn't care how I got to where I wanted to go as long as people didn't get in my way. In my BC days, before Christ, that was a... People were just um, something in the way of what I wanted. I didn't have any care and compassion for others. And so we should see ourselves, when we see other people and we see how they're living, we've looked at the Gentiles and said, hey, but for the grace of God, that's us. We should see ourselves in others. When we see sin in others, instead of condemning them, as the Jews were notorious for, we should feel compelled to love them just as Jesus loved us. Well, how do we know that? In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes this letter to the church at Ephesus, and here's what it says in 2, 4, and 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which what? He loved us. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. I pray that we would never become so self-righteous that we are never looking in, inward at ourselves and that we are always looking outward and condemning other people. I pray that we would never get too self-righteous to see how much we need Jesus every single second of our life. Romans chapter 10, verse 2. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So he says, you know, I, I bear witness. I know the Jewish people. They're my people. I was that way once too, Paul would say. Paul was one of them. Paul was a Pharisee. Paul was one who was a persecutor of the church. Paul was one who was passionate and zealous for the things of God. But let me say this, and this is kind of where I think we need to be careful as well. They were passionate about God, but not passionate for God. Now, I know in the text right here, the word is that they had a zeal for God. But I, I want to I, I talk about this for a second because I think what can happen is we can become so passionate about God that we are no longer passionate for God. And see, the Jews were passionate about the name of God. They were passionate. You know, when they would write, when the Jews would sit down and write text, if they came upon the name, and this is even later after, when they would write the name of God, they would get a separate pen, they would go cleanse themselves, they would come back, and they would dip the pen in ink, they would write the name of God, and they would throw that pen away, they would go cleanse themselves again, and come back and write the other words. That's how passionate they were about the name of God. They were so passionate about defending God's righteousness. They were passionate about the name of God, but they were not passionate about the fame of God. They would defend God and defend his righteousness while condemning other people, the ones that Jesus came to save. They would condemn other people and say that they are outcasts. They are not worthy of the grace of God, but yet at the very same time, they themselves not realizing that they were in need of the grace of God. They were passionate about defending the righteousness of God, but not passionate, not passionate about extending the grace of God. So let's defend the righteousness, but not extend grace. Unfortunately, these characteristics were not limited to first century Jews. 
Too many Christians today will tell you that they love you with their mouth, but then their actions speak completely different. They demonstrate not by loving one another, but by loving something else, themselves. In 1 John chapter 4, verses 20 and 21, I want you to listen to what John writes in this letter. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother. Now, none of us would say we hate anybody, I hope. But does how we treat everyone or anyone reflect hatred? If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love a God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment that we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. So there's John, I mean, painting it as clear as he can. And we have got to be careful not to be guilty of being more passionate about God than being passionate for God. And when I say passionate for God, I mean passionate for God and his purpose that he put the church here for. How passionate are we over the lost souls in our community? How much time have we spent praying for lost people in our community? How much time have we spent praying for people who have hurt us? And, and by, by the way, praying for people that have hurt you in a bad way, like God, if you could just take them out with a lightning bolt, I'd be happy. That's not the kind of praying I'm talking about. Like, how many of us have spent time praying for people who have hurt us? How many of us have spent time praying, God, use me to reach the lost? How many of us have spent time praying, God, use me here in the church so that we can disciple people so that they don't just come to salvation, but they grow in their faith, that there is a sanctification process that if I serve in the church, you can use me to help people mature in Christ. How many of us have prayed that way? Church, let's be committed today to loving who Jesus loved. That's everyone, saved and lost. And I believe that loving others well is preceded by how... By knowing how loved we are by God. Do you know how much God loves you? Do you know how much God has rescued you from? Do you know the life that you would be living were it not for the grace of God in your life? I, I, don't, I don't even want to pretend to think about where Billy Stevens would be if it hadn't been for the grace of God in 1998. I, I just would, I would be scared to even think about where I would be. Romans 10.3. What is another mistake that the Jews made that Paul points out for us here? For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's unrighteousness. In other words, here's what it says. They became unteachable. One of the things that I fear in church is that we, we can get to a place where, hey, you know what? If you've read through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, if you've read through it all, we can get to this place where we feel like we know it all. We can get to a place in our faith journey that we've been to church so much and we've been through so many Bible studies that we get complacent, that we just feel like, you know what, I think I've learned. I've sat under how many hundreds of sermons? I've sat under so many Bible teachings. I've been to Sunday school. I've got perfect attendance. I've been to youth group. I've been to kids ministry. I've been to VBS I've taught, I've done, and I'm afraid what, what can happen to us is we get into this mode where we feel like, God, I've learned everything that you have to teach me. And so the Jews were there. 
The Jews in Jesus' day missed Jesus and stumbled over Jesus because they had become unteachable. The whole point of the law, the whole point of the law was not ceremonially, ceremonial cleansing. In other words, hey, go make sacrifices. Uh, take your animals. Go on the Day of Atonement and go to the, the priest is going to make a sacrifice for you all um, on the Day of Atonement. It was not about ceremonial cleansing. It wasn't about do this and you'll get this. It was all about, here's what Jesus has done for you. Even in the Old Testament, righteousness came by faith. And this is what Paul has been arguing from early in the book of Romans. Jews had become so dialed in on the law and carrying it out week after week after week that they missed what or whom the Old Testament and the law was pointing to. So, they became... Unteachable. So how teachable are you? How moldable are you? How much are you allowing God to stretch you? Years ago, uh, I was having some back problems. And uh, I remember I went, to, um, I went to Dr. Mack. Dr. Mack said, hey, um, I'm going to refer you to Fitzgerald. Um, and I'm going to refer you over there. And you're going to go do some physical therapy. And I'm thinking to myself, Doc, like, physical therapy is not going to help me. Physical, like my back has been hurt for 10 years. Like physical therapy just is not going to do it. But you're the doctor. I'm going to go do what you say. So I went. And I went without belief that it was going to be helpful at all. And so I get there and uh, somebody helped me with his name. Fitzgerald, doctor, what is it? I'm sorry, I, I can't. T Taylor, thank you. Thank you. Steve Taylor. So Steve Taylor comes in and he evaluates me. He says, hey, bend over and touch your toes. I said, I don't think I can. Unless I pick him up, then I can touch him, you know? And he says, all right. So, and he took some measurements and he did some stuff. He says, all right, so we're going to, we, I, I got an idea. We're going to put you through some stuff. And they hooked me up to these like little things that make your back spasm out and heating pads and stretches. And he says, do these every day. And I did them every day. And six months later, I could touch my toes. Or not six months, six weeks, I'm sorry. Six weeks later, I could touch my toes. And he says, just keep doing that. And my back felt amazing. And you know what he called it? I was offended, by the way. He called it old white man disease. He said, first of all, I am not white. Just kidding. He said, as we get older, he said, your hamstrings, he said, because of, you know, not stretching properly, your hamstrings tighten, and then it pulls your pelvis, and it rocks your pelvis, which pinches your spine, which creates the back problems. I said, okay. He says, if you'll keep your hips and your hamstrings stretched out, you will be fine. And I said, okay. I'm, and you know what? I can go play basketball. Not very well anymore, but I can go play basketball for two hours and still wake up the next day and move. And I say all that to say this. When we become unteachable, we're like the old white man disease. When we're no longer stretchable and pliable, we have a tendency to break. You know what else has a tendency to break? Our faith. Our faith will have a tendency to break down because we become so dialed in on the law that we can no longer see people. The mission dies, and even sometimes our faith dies. There's a reality show real quick, and I'll close with this as the worship team comes. There's a reality show on TV called The Amazing Race. I've never watched it. I've seen clips of it, but I've never watched it. But it's basically, um, it's basically a scavenger hunt where they get these people and it's literally a race across America to find, get to the end of all the scavenging. Now, I don't know if you've ever done a scavenger hunt, but basically there's a clue. And when you find a clue, the clue leads you to another clue, which leads you to another clue, which if you follow them and find them, that you will eventually end up at the end goal. 
the law for the Jews became a stumbling block. Jesus became a stumbling block. And the reason is, is because it would be the equivalent of you and me participating in a scavenger hunt and finding the first clue and being like, yes, I'm good. I've reached it. I found it. And that's where the Jews were at. See, the clue is only meant to point you to the next thing. The clue is meant to point you in a scavenger hunt. The clue is meant to lead you down a path that leads you to a place where you reach the goal. And I think for us, I think for the Jews anyway, instead of the law becoming the clues which would ultimately lead them to Jesus, the law became the prize. Much in the same way, if you got to the first clue in a scavenger hunt, thought this was it, this was the thing that the whole thing was designed for. Not true. The law was meant to point us to Christ. The law was meant to point the Jews to Christ. May we not become so unteachable because we feel like we've gotten to this place where we're okay. I know enough about Jesus to get to heaven. It's not the goal. The goal is to be the image of God here on the earth. The goal and the mission is to go make disciples. That's the vision. That's the mission. That's what God had planned all along, that Jesus would come and that he would point the way to himself, that he would be the fulfillment of the law, and that we would then be changed by Jesus and then go carry out that mission to lead others there as well. Let's not become unteachable. Let's not become like the Jews. Let's not be a stumbling block. Let's be the hands and the feet of Jesus. Because I can tell you this. You, if you've studied the Bible very much at all, there's, there's, there's moments in your study where you read a passage and you're like, I have read that a thousand times and I've never seen it that way before. Why? It's the Holy Spirit. He's the teacher. That's why we need to continue to expose ourselves to the Word of God so that we may be taught in the things of God. Let's pray.